New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Paul Ragat Loeb has spent over 40 years researching and writing about citizen responsibility and empowerment. And he has been the guest lecturer at many colleges and universities, including Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and MIT, and has been a keynote speaker at a myriad of conferences. He blogs regularly for the Huffington Post and is the founder of the National Nonpartisan Campus Election Engagement Project, which worked with 750 colleges and universities to engage students in the presidential election. And this organization continues to help engage students in state and local elections. He's the author of many books, including Soul of a Citizen, Living with Conviction in Challenging Times, and The Impossible Will Take a Little While, Perseverance and Hope in Troubled Times. Join us for the next hour as we explore making a difference in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds with our guest, Paul Rogat Loeb. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Paul, welcome. Very glad to be here. I want to begin by um, starting with a quote that you've used in your book, and it's a book of essays. And uh, Right. So, so I think of the impossible will take a little while as a kind of global chorus of voices on hope and persistence. And so I've gathered basically the writers who've inspired me over the years from all over the world to then pass it on and inspire other people as well. And they're just fantastic essays covering a myriad of, of different subjects that will inspire all of us. And I want to mention this quote. This is from Mary Catherine Bateson, who's an anthropologist and actually the daughter of Gregory Bateson, whom some of us know. Who's, and Margaret Mead, who many of us know. <laughs> Margaret Mead. She is a product of Margaret Mead and, and Gregory Bateson, and she's wonderful in her own right. And she says in, in her essay, changes will be anything but linear or predictable. There is a value in living with ambiguity. Changes of any kind are improvisational, proceeding with interruptions, disappointments, and unexpected detours. The contours of what we've accomplished may not be apparent until long after we take action for a particular cause. And she goes on to say, but 
Whether we're striving toward personal or political change, if we risk sufficient leaps of faith, enlist enough allies, and persist long enough, we can simultaneously be true to ourselves and help create a society that fosters greater dignity for all. That's that's a huge mouthful, but but just to break that down a bit, you know, she starts off with it, it's not going to be linear. No. And I think we have this sense of everything sort of, you know, you, here's your Google you plug in your Google mapping device. Here's you are at point A, you want to get to point B, tells you where to go. Here's the roads, here's the routes, here it is. And social change just isn't like that. And you want to map it out as well as you possibly can. You want to be intelligent. You want to be strategic. You want to think it through. But at a certain point, you have to take those leaps. And one of the things that, that as somebody who's been a participant and an observer in social change movements for, you know, four decades or more, what I've learned is that you cannot always see where the road is headed. And so when you're plugging away and you're thinking about you're here in the trenches, you know, it's frustrating. We talked about Rosa Parks, 12 years working with the NAACP in Montgomery, Alabama. The change is slow, the change is painful. Before she got on the bus. Before she got on the bus. The change is slow, the change is painful. You don't always seem like you're making progress. And then one of the many things that she did, leaps, lights of spark, and suddenly the whole world knows about Montgomery, Alabama, and the whole world knows about Rosa Parks. But had she not done all those other things, had not all the people alongside her done all those other things, you never would see that change. And so for any of the people who are involved, you just don't know. You know, I mean, the change could be, the leap could be bringing in a key person. So in The Impossible Will Take a Little While, one of the key key figures is Vlasov Havel, the former Czech president, leader of their democracy movement. And there was a moment in the struggle for democracy where they were trying to free some political prisoners. And everybody was mocking them. And they were saying, this will not make any difference. None of this will matter. Why are you even bothering? Maybe you could gift them some extra food or something, but you're not going to change this regime. And about seven years later, he writes about their efforts. They were circulating a petition. And this is 1986, and the Berlin Wall doesn't fall till 1989, which is the same year that Czechoslovakia has what they call the Velvet Revolution and overthrows their dictatorship without a shot being fired. So right now, he's looking back and he's writing under a dictatorship and he's looking at the movement and he's looking at how there was a sort of how it started and there was a, a rock band called the plastic people of the universe influenced by our America's own Frank Zappa and they were just you know, their music was not copacetic with the, the commissars running the state and so they're harassed and banned and Havel and, all, and others start organizing defense and then some of the people organizing defense are thrown in jail and so it, it's it's an example of human, human courage and things erupting in unlikely places. 
And Havel's looking back on sort of their efforts. And he says, you know what? In this particular case, one of many things we did, we did not succeed in freeing the prisoners. So you could say it was worthless. He said, I don't think so. Some might look at that, oh, they failed. Some might look at it as though they failed. He said two things were true. One is that the people in jail were very important to keep their morale up, and they knew that they weren't alone. We talked in the last segment about the importance of having a community behind you. So they knew they weren't alone. They, they were they less got isolated. Word. They, they got, got word. word of of what was going on outside of the prison Outside compound. the prison gates. And that helped them persevere. And he said, they were very important, courageous voices. We needed them continuing. So just for that alone, it was worth it. But he said something else was interesting. He said... When this movement started, say, two decades before, they were a handful of us. They could just throw us all in jail, and that would sort of take care of it. And he said, so many people for that, that petition was the first step to standing up as free human beings, but it wasn't their last step. They've gone on to play dissonant music, put on dissonant plays, speak out from the pulpits, in the classroom, in the workplaces. He said, there are so many people now speaking out there's no way that the regime can put them all in and jail. One of one of the things I know that took place because Michael Toms, my late husband and founder, co-founder of New Dimensions, went to Czechoslovakia shortly after the Velvet Re- Revolution and interviewed some folk singers. Oh, that's and great. And one of the things that they were doing, they were singing, you know, African-American Negro spirituals, you know, but they were actually protest songs. Sure, they were liberation songs. And, and, and They're talking the, the about powers, the promised land and Moses. Exactly, and, the, but the powers that be didn't recognize them. They thought, oh, these are some religious right. songs. How going, quaint. Quaint, and they didn't bother them. But underground, it was this whole protest movement that was right. just fomenting. And people, and people, and if you you would hear that and you would know that. So one of the lessons that Havel drew, that until he did, I had never thought about it, which is that when you are working for change, you're sort of doing, you're working in two time frames. You're trying to stop something, start something, build something, win an election, stop a Keystone pipeline, make a school district better, whatever it happens to be. And obviously the stop a war, the, the, the stakes are huge oftentimes, and lives can hinge on them. But you're also doing something else, which is, which goes right back to what Bateson says. You're trying to bring people into a stream of involvement. Because once you get them involved, you don't know where they're going to continue. And so in the case of Havel, those people who first signed that petition went on to do all of these other things and in fact launched the Velvet Revolution. In the case of Rosa Parks, you can ask the question, who got Rosa Parks involved? And we know, again, her husband, Raymond Parks, a barber in Montgomery, Alabama, ordinary person. He helps found the NAACP, dealing with issues like lynching in a period where, by doing that, you are setting yourself up to possibly end up tortured and hung from a tree or dead in a river. Tremendous courage. He gets Rosa Parks involved. She later makes global history. But then you ask the question, who got Raymond Parks involved? Somebody did. It doesn't just happen. And you have to think that there were these anonymous people. Maybe it's in the barbershop. They have the conversation. They give each other courage 
to found that NAACP chapter. And without them, maybe Raymond doesn't get involved. Without Raymond, maybe Rosa doesn't get involved. Without Rosa, the stand on the bus that we've all heard of doesn't happen in the same way. And so you, you never can replay global history. But I would say that at every point we act, and we see this again and again and again, even if you're in this struggle that seems to lose, even if the stakes are huge, maybe so long as you're continuing to reach out, maybe you've brought in that key person that then goes on. It's the first time in their life they've acted. They go on to do other things and they move the cause of human dignity and justice and sustainability. They move that forward in ways that you never could anticipate. Well, I I think of one of the examples uh, in one of the essays is that... um, Dr. Benjamin Spock was like a famous, famous uh He was the most doctor. famous doctor in the world baby. along with the inventor of the polio vaccine. Right. And uh, he happened to notice just a handful of women standing in front of the White House in the rain. He was just driving by and it caught his attention. These just handful with their protest signs, they were protesting nuclear proliferation and, and right. nuclear power. And, and they were just standing there, and it caused him to have a huge a leap, a leap, a yeah. leap. No. and then, then everything changed. So, so we're, we're, we're going to talk about how those leaps, but, but how a handful here and a handful there. I, I want to tell our listeners, I'm here with Paul Rogat Loeb. He spells his name L-O-E-B, Paul Loeb. And he is the editor of The Impossible Will Take a Little While, Persistence and Hope in Troubled Times. If you want to know about his work and get in touch with him, you can go to his website, theimpossible.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Paul Rogat Loeb, and he is the author of The Impossible Will Take a Little While, Perseverance and Hope in Troubled Times. Paul, I was just mentioning the story of Dr. Benjamin Spock, uh, how he got involved in the nuclear proliferation movement. and, and uh, Right, because it's always, to me, when I'm watching history unfold, it's always interesting when somebody I know sort of accidentally is at that key moment. 
And in this case, it was a friend of mine who was an anthropologist at MIT, who was at that point a widow with, I think, four young children in D.C. It was the early 60s, in the rain. Their signs were running. They were bedraggled. The kids wanted to go home. It was just, it was one of those low points. And they were just (laughs) thinking, why "Why are we doing doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I here? This makes no sense whatsoever. And not, you know, the president is not going to heat us. And then... And who was president at that time? Kennedy. This is way back in Kennedy period. And so then this movement of theirs builds, and there's a big rally. And Benjamin Spock, who was mentioned, is the most famous, he along with Salk from the polio vaccine, are the most famous doctors in the world, probably, and then maybe Albert Schweitzer. And so when he gets involved in these issues, it's huge because everybody's raising their kids on baby and child care. Now, we didn't have Facebook and Twitter and all that. We didn't have any of that. But we did have a recognizable name. We had a hugely recognizable name. And he's giving a talk about the issues and the nuclear testing and all that stuff. And then he's references. He said, you know, these are the issues. But what really got me to think about it is I was in D.C. I was passing the White House. I saw this tiny group of women in the rain. And it just looked, they looked like if, they, if this meant so much that they're willing to brave the rain, I had to at least check out what they were saying. And I did. And it made sense to me. And that's why I'm here. And as he's talking, Lisa realizes that it's her group. And so what was interesting is she's a brilliant woman. And, you know, has written, has influenced lots of people, but it wasn't in her role as an anthropologist or an MIT professor. It was just there showing up with other people, bearing witness, and somehow just by doing that, she brings somebody in who would then go on to influence, you know, hundreds of thousands of others. And that happens in history again and again. Again and again. Um, you know, I want to talk about, like, in these grassroots movements where where people unlikely people get together it starts in a small group and then it somebody else joins and maybe a bigger name comes in that has a little more influence and it kind of happens but in all of the movement what strikes me is the disbursement of of power in other words it's not built hierarchically this is what makes it so powerful isn't that true Well, I think successful movements are always like that. I mean, there may be visible figures who come to the surface, you know, become the spokespeople or the, you know, the articulators um, of a movement. But I also think that they always get their power from those ordinary people. And you don't really know, you know, who is going to move something forward again or in what place. I mean, I remember once I gave a talk at a college in uh, southern Georgia and it was just, you know, remote rural community. But within, I'm going to say 20 miles of there, was something called Koinonia Farm, which is a, a radical theologian named Clarence Jordan who was influenced so many people during the civil rights movement, had an interracial farm near there. And then over in the other direction was where Habitat uh, for Humanity was founded. And then, you know, a few miles down the road, Jimmy Carter grew up. And this was in this sort of, I, I said to them, I said, well, you know, I know that you're, you think all the action goes on in Atlanta or Washington, D.C., but let me tell you that your little community has changed history in lots of ways that are continuing to unfold. And, and, and that's true everywhere. So I think oftentimes, in a way, it may be that the, with the new technologies, we see that more easily, that something can start in one community and travel to another, that that often happens. Um, 
Uh, my, my well, I, elect- can, I can think of that. We, we call him the tank man because we don't know who it was, but that, oh, that, in small, Square. that, that, that young man, that visual of him standing in front right. of that tank. And, and this is an example to me of how movements can leap geographic boundaries because for the moment at least, that effort failed. And China is politically, it's a controlled society. But I would argue that that image of that man standing up for justice has influenced people world round. And so in other societies, they have pushed things forward and then it'll go around and the turn will come around to China again and they will also do so. But certainly, I mean, his action did not go without ripples. So many people were inspired by it. And I think that that's part of something you know, we talked earlier in the last segment of the way that Henry David Thoreau influenced, Tolstoy influenced, Gandhi influenced, the U.S. civil rights movement influenced, the Arab Spring, and on and Martin on and on. Luther King, yeah. Um, I would say, and that was when it was mostly traveling by paper. Now, I think, in fact, those images can travel much more faster, much faster, and can indeed influence people far more rapidly. I want I want to bring up an important point. Uh, this is uh, someone, an article, an essay in the book uh, by David Roberts, who uh, is with Grist Magazine. And he says, this is a quote that just like powerfully hit me, we are designated, or it, we are designed to heed immediate threats with teeth and eyes, not long-term, incremental, invisible dangers. And so we are stuck between the impossible and the unthinkable. And he's talking about climate change. The, right. it's, a, it's, it's one of my favorite essays. I mean, I, if folks are just turning in, I, after 10 years, I did a wholly new edition of The Impossible. It will take a little while, this anthology on hope. And very, the last essay that I added uh, because it just was written right, right as I was finishing the book, was uh, this essay by David Roberts called Is There Hope on Climate Change? And he was looking very clear-eyed, you know, no sentimentality, no Pollyannish. He says, you know, if you, if you heed the science, you know, we are in a disaster mode. And, and, and other folks in the, you know, you know, are, are looking at the same thing. Paul Hawken, the wonderful environmental writer, Mark Hertzgard, there's a, a great essay by uh, called The Inevitability Trap that we could talk about by a person who works for a group called Climate Solutions. And so they're all saying, let's look at this. It, it is serious. It is real. We should have been acting 10 years ago. Um, and so where do you go with that? And what's powerful to me is he says, we don't really know where it's going to unfold. We don't know what action that we take is going to inspire somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. We talked in the last segment about a handful of people in Nebraska setting in motion the process that as we talk has delayed the Keystone Pipeline from the tar sands for four years and may ultimately shut it down entirely. We, I look at the earlier on the the move belatedly and finally of the Obama administration to actually put serious limits on coal plants. And you could say it's still not quite what we need, but it's epical. It's something that's far, that has happened a leap further than any president has ever done or even come close. And my hope is that it will inspire further actions and further changes. And so when we're looking at, at something like climate change, where, where we may not have the little while, the impossible will take a little while, we may not have all the time in the world, 
The challenge, I think, is to be able to say, as Robert says, you, you take your actions anyway. You, you know, if in fact, you know, the scientists say you get past two degrees of centigrade, there are these tipping points, there's, you know, we get into really bad territory. But two is better than three, and three is better than four. And at every moment, you have the ability to steer a better or a worse outcome. And as he said, you just keep trying every door because you don't know which door is going to well, open and set up the, the ripple effects. That reminds me of uh, Michael and I were down in Costa Rica when the Dalai Lama was speaking. This was back in 1989, I believe. And that's when I first heard him talk about hope. And he, somebody said, hey, you know, I don't know why you go around feeling so happy all the time. Your country's been occupied for decades. Exactly. Genocide happening. You'll probably never get back to Tibet. And he said something so powerful to me. It changed my life. He said, well, um, I don't do this because I'm assured of some sort of outcome. I do it. And he said, this is a quote, because it is the right and good thing thing for me to do. It makes me feel better. That is so fundamental. It's the same thing that Havel said, and we talked about earlier, distinguishing hope from optimism. Optimism, you think it's going to turn out the way you want. Hope, you're driven by this deep conviction that it's the right thing to do, and you do it no matter what. And so with climate change, we don't know the final outcome. Right. But but. we we must gather ourselves together, not isolate, and continue to do what is right and good and, for and, us to do. And act as if as if it did depend on us, because it very well may. So when I look, um, there there's an essay called The Inevitability Trap, and the impossible will take a little while. And it says, we say these things are inevitable. We, you know, first we deny climate change, then we say it's too late, then we say it's all the Chinese fault. It's all beyond and our control. Say it's going to happen anyway, so right. what's the it's use? It's going to happen anyway, so what's the use? And, and he says, supposing we made the assumption that it was up to us, that our actions would in fact create the tipping points potentially, or our inaction would in fact allow that sort of disaster to continue unfolding. Inaction is a kind of vote. Inaction is definitely a vote. You know, and you go back to the David Roberts vote story, and he says, you you open every door, you try every possibility, you keep on, and then you don't know what's going to happen. And so, for example, and this is the this is the era where maybe optimism, here's a little ray of optimism amplifying the deeper level of hope, is when they've started monitoring, Mark Hertzgard writes about this in The Impossible Will Take a Little While, the rates of solar and wind power adoption in the last few years, they've taken off so rapidly, they've exceeded the rates of cell phone adoption in a comparable place in the adoption curve. And suddenly you've got, I think it's Portugal, half the energy comes, the electricity comes from wind power. Germany, there was a day, you know, it was a sunny day where 75% electricity came from renewable energy uh, on a given day. Iowa, it's well over a quarter, and it's just, it's taking off. And now there's a way of storing it even on, on cloudy days there, or there's, something? There's a couple there's of ways something. of storing it. I mean, there's, yeah. we could get into the technologies, yeah, but there's but sort I mean, of there's, salt storage, there's right. pumped water. Algae stories. There, yeah, yeah, there's, there's different right. approaches, and those are the things that obviously have to be developed more and are in the process of doing it. But it's, 
it's moving on multiple fronts. And the question is, will it move fast enough? I mean, even something I, I, I you know, my, my, my footprint comes from air travel because I make my living lecturing on campuses and in conferences. And there are flights that have basically happened with algae-based biofuels where a plane takes off and, you know, manages to traverse an ocean and lands on algae-based biofuels. The question is, can you scale up the production level quickly enough so then that becomes the dominant approach? But I, I was heartened. I was uh, watching where I live, this group called Climate Solutions. It was wonderful work that uh, they were working with Alaska Airlines and Boeing on, on exactly that kind of thing. That's and so, so, so these, are the, these are the things that are often below the radar. And, and, and you don't read them on the front page. You, we don't you read know, them on the front or, page. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk more about this in just one moment. I'm here with Paul Rogat Loeb. He is the uh, collector and the editor of uh, an anthology called The Impossible Will Take a Little While, Perseverance and Hope in Troubled Times. And if you want to know more about his work, go to his website, theimpossible.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Paul Loeb, and he's the editor of the anthology, The Impossible Will Take a Little While, Perseverance and Hope in Troubled Times. Paul, uh, the in, uh, inevitability trap, you, was there something more that you well, wanted to say I about think, that? I think, yeah, when we were talking just a few minutes ago about you know, the, the rates of solar and wind adoption and just you know, these genuinely heartening developments that go on beyond the radar, the challenge is... I mean, you could sort of stand back and cheer it on and say, yes, go team, we're gonna let, you know, we're gonna win. Global warming will lose. That's not a very constructive attitude. The, 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 what we really need to do is to say, wherever we are, I mean, our, our state has just set, you know, I live in Washington state, enormously ambitious goals. We have one of the greenest governors in the country, Jay Inslee, on basically saying, we're gonna make this state a model for everywhere on how to move past fossil fuels. And we have some advantages because we have hydro, but the challenge is, is every state needs to do that. Every city needs to do that. Every community, every university, every, every corporation needs to say, this is, and again, you go back to the inevitability trap. He says, well, it's up to somebody who's it's going to be. And if the answer to who it's going to be is us, then it means, again, we have this imperative to act on this sort of ultimate issue that so profoundly affects the, the future of, of the planet. Exactly. And I'm, I'm thinking also of the essay by Desmond Tutu, and he was, um, he was really talking about how if we have a partial victory, some people would call that, uh, okay, well, we haven't won at all, so what's the use? But, but what would you have to say to that? Well, King has this great phrase. He says, every victory, and I'm probably paraphrasing it, is the, it's the product of the partial victories, and we're never going to win completely. And I think that we have a tendency to dismiss our victories, 
constantly. It's almost a way of taking us off the hook. And we say, oh, well, that we won, but that one doesn't count. So let me give you an example. One of the newer pieces in The Impossible Take a Little While is the writer Dan Savage is talking about the gay rights movement. And if you look at it, it is stunning. If you, I mean, I grew up in an era where gays were, as Savage did, you know, gays were closeted. And, and you did not, without huge sanction, you know, come out unless you just had enormous courage. And to go from there to the point where you have a United States Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg conducting a gay marriage in Washington, D.C., or the IRS trying to seriously, dutifully figure out, okay, well, somebody's married in this state, they moved to another state. Uh, yeah, it looks to us like they're still married, as far as I can tell. They haven't gotten divorced. Um, and uh, the break, I think the, the breakthrough is staggering. And 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 in savage, a short period of in time. In a short period of time, in the, you know, in a few decades. And Savage talks about growing up gay in Chicago, and yeah, he knew he was gay earlier on, and is is seeing two you know young men holding hands at a movie theater publicly when that just wasn't done, and you know his mom sort of oh the, you know they're being weird, and he knows oh they look happy, that's what I am. They look like they're having a good time. And, you know, and not just that sort of individual action. He talks about a, a writer um, who did a sort of pioneering uh, uh, essay in the cover of the New York Times magazine, a very, very well-known writer, and who was talking about just his life and how his friends would say, oh, this is back, I think it was in the, the late 60s, uh, Oh, you understand, I'm not bringing my son because, you know, you might, you, I, I trust you, but some of your friends might be around and they might do something to him. And, and he says, like, no, I, I don't understand. And, and, and he talks about in this sort of pioneering essay. And, and meanwhile, Savage is reading this on, a, on the beach in Hawaii. And he is, he is, he and his husband, who is a man also, have their, their kid who they've adopted, who is, who is not, who is not gay, who is straight. And several of the friends of the kid who also are straight have come along. And several of their friends who happen to be gay have come along. And the parents, what he says, the only thing the parents are really, really worried about is, you know, are they going to get, make sure they floss the teeth, not eat too much <laughs> junk food, you know, get enough sunscreen, go to bed on time, do their homework, about. what all parents worried about. And he said, that is the, the distance we've traveled, you know, because suddenly it is no longer, at least in this community, it is no longer an issue. Now, of course, it still is an issue in the culture. And yes. Savage started, it's called It Gets Better, after a kid in, I think it was Indiana, killed himself, may or may not even have been gay, but was bullied for being gay. Um, and the idea was to have videos out there where anybody could hear of them, access them. And pretty soon it just took off. I mean, there were millions of viewers Um President Obama did one, sports teams, you know, the San Francisco Giants did one. And pretty soon you've got, you know, all these voices saying, get through this hard period, it will get better. And the point that, that looping way back to where we started this particular discussion of the, of, of the gay rights movement is it's an astoundingly successful movement in an astounding short of time. But I've talked with people who sort of say it's a good that it succeeded. You know, obviously it's beneficial for human dignity, but that's easy and corporate power doesn't really care about that. And, and 
you know, that, that, that was destined to happen anyway. I was fundraising for my election project, talking to somebody with a lot, lot of, lot of money could have been a huge potential help. Maybe he will still, I hope. But that was sort of his argument is, you know, so things, things are he, not going to change. And this one doesn't count. It doesn't, is he discrediting all the different acts that, of different people, heroic acts of different people that led to that? Yeah, is that I think what you're is, saying? I think what happened, and this is a good human being who's done a lot yes. of good work. And I think he got so stuck in his own despair that when something appeared that could give a glimmer of hope, he dismissed it. Yes. And I think a lot of us do it. So we look at it and we say, oh, well, yeah, that's good. I mean, it wasn't like he thought it was bad in any way, but he just sort of thought, well, that was destined to happen anyway, but corporate power has got a, lot, a stranglehold on us and there's too many wars and there's the drones. So he saw the part that he didn't like. And I'm not arguing for Pollyannaism. What, what I'm, if that even is a word, um, you know, the sort of sentimental, oh, it'll all be wonderful and there'll be harps and unicorns and we'll, it will all be fine. What I'm really saying is when something achieves a victory, whatever the issue is, if it's a victory for human dignity or victory for sustainability, we need to cheer it, we need to embrace it. And and then, and then continue on in the work. Again, go back to the, you know, not so long ago, epical movement from, of, of the Obama administration on climate change after enormous, all those kinds of grassroots pressure that I talked about and all the kinds I haven't talked about, that, that it's huge, it's significant. And that, that he's saying, hey, uh, limits on carbon Limits emissions. on carbons, limits on the coal plant. It's, it's a huge victory. And then, yes, we can say, and we need to go still further. Yeah, we yeah, can't right. set our tent up there. We can't fold and, our uh, tent. Yeah, and, but, and, so you do both. You celebrate, and then you continue and to you push continue on. on. And I'm also thinking about how when there is a, a, a number of us, a, a swelling number of us, I might vision something to, to look a certain way that I would say this would be a victory if it looks this way. Right. If we achieved this if or this. these people participated. But, but, but what that misses, in, in my opinion, is we, we don't know enough as a single, in my single vision of it. And what has surprised me through the years, through the years of doing New Dimensions for 40 years now. Which is huge. You know, which huge. itself is a victory, I might argue. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Come pledge time and everything else. And I, I've kind of seen, oh, it should be this way. And I have seen it unfold in surprise ways that is way beyond my imagination and and so that has hardened me that is said okay it doesn't have to come out the way I'm the conclusion I see it could be better than that so and what I'm trying to say is that that the uh, being able to use our imagination and reimagining things is really important too, and to do it collectively and allow a lot of diversity right. in that imagination. And and, and, you know, and go, going back to you know that very beginning with the Mary Catherine Bateson's quote to embrace the unexpected because sometimes we are brought down by you know oh no we cannot live in ambiguity we have to have certainty we have to know exactly what's going to unfold and my experience working in social changes has been exactly the same which is the most important things we do are sometimes the thing sometimes it's the intentionality but sometimes it's what we're not expecting what happens is the unexpected fruits of our efforts becomes the most powerful thing that we do and 
Only by being involved do we put ourselves in a position to, to allow that happen. Certainly, it's been true with my election project. The very best ideas that anybody has had, they always bubble up from the schools. I don't come up with them, but we've created a kind of vehicle for communications where we basically work with schools, pull together the best nonpartisan ideas from around the country, and say, this is what you could do to engage your students, um, and hold up a moral standard that says, Supposing, go back to the inevitability trap, supposing you said it was in your hands whether or not your students voted by your actions. And we say that to administrators, faculty, staff, student leaders, and we then pull together the suggestions of, from other schools to be able to allow them to do so. And when we do that, the best suggestions, again, are always the ones that, that, that are just unexpected that nobody would have thought of except the people who thought of them. And you have an example of just uh, as far as uh, individual action and and doing those little things that make a difference in in your own state, in Washington oh, State, right, the election right. of your governor. That's right. Uh, who is now, like, Washington State is one of the greenest states, and you're a model for some other right. states. Well, it was, the, it was his predecessor. So this is 2004, and we were— I didn't really, I was focusing mostly on national races, and I really wasn't paying that much attention to our governor's race, to be honest. And, but, you know, I knew it was somewhat close. And on election day, I did what I always do, which is I go down for the candidate I prefer, and I say, okay, what do you need me to do? And, I mean, I usually do it you know, a few days before so they can plug me in. And I usually spend the week making phone calls where, to wherever they suggest that it's needed. And so in this case, they gave me what's called, you know, a walk list, they call it, where it's just basically, here are these people we've identified as supporters of our candidate. We want to make sure they turn out at the polls. And so I knocked on the doors in a neighborhood in Seattle. And over the course of the day, I got three people out to vote. And it wasn't because I was so eloquent or compelling or a book writer or anything like that. One of them forgot it was election day. One of them needed a ride to the polls. And one of them didn't know what to do with an absentee ballot. And how could they could still mail it? And so I had a phone number and I got answers to all of those. And anybody walking the exact same route would have had the exact same results that I had. And then what happens is they count the votes and it's close. It is seriously close. It is so close that they have three recounts and the leads go back and forth. And finally, after three recounts, it's 134 votes between the two candidates. And I do the math and I think, oh, so I got 150th of the margin. And if 50 fewer people had showed up on my side, my candidate probably would have lost. Had 50 more people showed up on the other side, their candidate would have won. And it was just this confirmation, you know, again, but it you wasn't glamorous. You yeah. showed up. You went and you knocked on the door and, right. you know, you participated. I want to tell our listeners that I'm here with Paul Loeb, and he is the editor of the anthology, The Impossible Will Take a Little While, Perseverance and Hope in Troubled Times. If you want to know more about his work, go to the website, theimpossible.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Paul Rogat Loeb, and he is the editor of the anthology, The Impossible Will Take a Little While, Perseverance and Hope in Troubled Times. And here we are in troubled times, and we want to stay out of burnout because that is something that's very tempting to just go back and say, okay, I'm tired. I can't do this anymore. So what would you say about uh, things that restore us? Well, I think if we want to keep on, and we have to, the, you know, there's some key elements. And we've talked earlier about community. Um, that's essential. You cannot do it alone. I mean, isolation I re- is not killer. an option. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember my election probably there was a period where we just got besieged with sequential health crises of key staffers in a way that I couldn't have predicted. And it was the point that I reached out to my friends and said, you know, what do I do? And they're like, okay, here's the way forward. You know, you, you, you can't do it alone, no matter how good you think you are um, or how committed you think you are. The appreciating and valuing your victories, we've talked about that, that's essential. You also, I think, there's a, ro- a key role for creativity. And, and creativity is just, it's the ability to see the world right now and then put a different twist on it. This could be possible, that could be possible, to break out of the box of the sort of conventionally expected, even from your own expectations. And, and I find that is such an antidote to burnout. There's a, there's a great... Uh example of this that is done really outside the box and it's one of the essays out and it's about the women in Zambia. Right. So, so, so I mean, they had something called the cha-cha-cha, which is their sort of anti-colonial rebellion against the British, largely nonviolent. And, uh, you know, although they're not entirely so. And at one point, well, one of the things that triggered it is it was, it was called Rhodesia. And there was a rule that if you were black, you had to, you couldn't go into the store, in a white store. You had to have be something handed out for the window. And so one of the, this man named Simon Kapapwe was one of the sort of leaders of the anti-colonial resistance, went into a, I think it was a Land Rover dealership and said, okay, I'm buying this car, hand it out through the window. <laughs> <laughs> and and they and they're like wait well you know we obviously we'll just drive it around you can't hand it out the window he said no 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 this is the law the law has to be enforced you have to hand it out through the window and they said well you know no but obviously in this case we'll just take it around he said no I insist he gets in the car and he drives it out through the window and the wall <laughs> and that helps trigger the uprising and at a later point I mean they're bringing in the sort of stern jawed British colonial administrator no nonsense he is going to put a stop to this. He's a, he's a newly appointed. He's I newly think. appointed. Yes. Yeah, he's going to put it down. And one of the organizers decides to meet him at the airport. This is, you know, open Tarmark Airport with as many, she's described sort of the largest women she could find naked singing songs of welcome to him. <laughs> and he, the plane touches down. He's surrounded he looks at this. He looks at it. It's, a, it's like a sea of a sea. large, naked women singing. Yeah, they're warm, very being, they're being welcomes, very welcoming. Yeah, uh, with and, smiles. And with smiles. And joy. And, and joy. <laughs> and he just like gets back and goes back to England. He's not going to, you know, he just cannot deal with he it. He turns around and gets back on the plane. He doesn't even get off the plane. He doesn't get off the plane. I mean, it reminds me of another example where in the overthrow of the dictator Milosevic in Serbia, people are after the stolen election, they're marching in Belgrade and they, the, the this 
sort of procession led by a kind of overweight small town mayor in his green jogging suit comes across a barricade of the military who blocked the road. And they say, I'm sorry, we're not allowed to let you through. And they gather and they negotiate and said, we understand. You have your orders. Uh, you can't let us through. But would it be okay if we went around? And the military confers and they say, yes, that would be fine with us. We have no problem with that. <laughs> and then they come back and they said, that, that's great. That's we're really grateful. Uh, there's this bus, military bus in the road. I know you can't move it. You have your orders. Could we move it? Yes, that would be fine. <laughs> we just can't move it. And they do that and they go around and they continue on and overthrow a dictator. So oh, it's that's that, that's, that's that wonderful radical imagination. And that was the same in uh, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, uh, Zambia, Zambia, Zambia right. uh, where, where it was just a few years after that that they got their independence. They got their independence, exactly. You know, and so whatever our situation, you know, whether it's you know, half across the world or here in the U.S., that imagination is so powerful. And, and, and the th people think this stuff is new. There, there's a wonderful essay, uh, one of my favorites in The Impossible Will Take a Little While, by a late theologian called Walter, named Walter Wink. And, and it's called Jesus and Alinsky. And Jesus, we know who Jesus is. And Alinsky is Saul Alinsky, the kind of godfather of community organizing. And what he does is he looks at those very, those phrases that we all know about, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek. And, and he starts dissecting him in the, in the context of the time as strategies of nonviolent resistance. Because you couldn't, if you did an uprising against the Romans, which happened regularly, you would be lined up, crucified. I mean, they just had too much military might. There was no way a small country could overthrow them. But you had to come up with something. And he didn't want to, and Jesus didn't want in his retelling just a seed. So, for example, the turn the other cheek, we think it means just be meek and nice. He said, look, this is a right-handed culture because your left was how you wiped your behind after you went to the bathroom. You know, you weren't allowed to touch, you know, all this taboos against touching someone with that. And you could, if you were sort of, you could strike someone with your fist, but he only did that to an equal. You could slap an inferior. And if somebody turned away and turned to the other cheek, you could not slap them. You could punch them. Because you, you only had your right hand. Because you only had your right it. hand. And so, so that essentially you would have to treat them as an equal. And that was a way of reasserting power, the go the extra mile. So it was really a, a um, for Jesus, it was... Uh, it was nonviolent resistance. Nonviolent resistance. It wasn't like turn the other cheek and like, take more punishment. Take more punishment. No, no, no. It was nonviolent it was, resistance. It was using the law. Right. And so it was, the go the extra mile is, there was a law that a... A Roman centurion could require a subject citizen to carry their pack, meaning, you know, 40, 50, 60 pounds for a mile, but no more because if people started falling over dead, you'd have rebellion. And so, so there, there, it was a, there was a limit to how far right. the centurions could force these to go right. to walk. And if you suddenly refused to give the pack back and you continued walking on, they're in the position of having to beg you to return their pack. The power has been resist, reversed. The, 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 the give them your cloak, you know, ask for your coat, give them your cloak. Um, it was about debt. And basically, if you were poor, you had nothing. You didn't wear underwear. You know, underneath your cloak, that was it. And so it was saying, all right, you're going to leave me naked. Here it is. And, and then the shame goes on the person who is the debtor. So, so, so somebody's so, walking naked down the street yeah, and, it's and like, it oh, well, shows the, up. He took, well, my, he took he, my cloak. He took my cloak. Yeah, I have no choice. Yeah. And so it was, he looks at them and then compares them very explicitly to Olinsky's principles of nonviolent resistance and creativity. And wasn't there, there, there a woman who got um, 
into the the whole justice system. She about taxes and and supporting Vietnamese babies. Oh right, it was some. So he mentioned the example of somebody who during the Vietnam War put a bunch of Vietnamese orphans who had been orphaned by the war as dependents on her tax return, and then sort of fought that out as a way to dramatize. And it, and it got to to the courts. Yeah, and, and it did. so it got publicized. And, and we, you know, we saw some of that during the Occupy movement, which yeah. I think flamed out by being too insular and not building those coalitions mm-hmm. and, and being too much focused on dramatization and not enough on organizing. But there was some amazing creativity. But it's not dead yet. I mean, it's not we're, by we're no gonna, means dead. We, something was planted there, right. and and I have the confidence that, that you know, I think nature never likes to waste anything. So, oh, yeah. so in this way, we've learned some things from that, and we're continuing on. Absolutely. And there's ripples. I mean, uh, the mayor de Blasio in New York might not have come to power. My city of Seattle passed a $15 an hour minimum wage phase in. Now San Francisco is following. I mean, the ideas ripple. And that's and that's part of the the creativity. Is some of it is coming up with things that nobody has thought of, and that 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 is an antidote to burnout. And some of it is importing. So I remember going to on a sustainability trip to Copenhagen, Denmark, and they were showing us the first. Everybody was on bikes, and I thought, oh, well, that's just a European city the way it is. You know, old people, overweight people, little kids in these protected bike lanes. And this is, oh, I don't know, it was maybe 2007 when I took the trip. And then they showed us, the people who put together the plan, how Copenhagen was in the 70s and it looked like Los Angeles, cars everywhere, you know, no bikes. And they made a deliberate, you know, innovative approach to create these separated bike lanes. Now, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, I mean, cities globally, I mean, this is just in the U.S., replicate this. Uh, there's a city called Curitiba um, in Brazil, it's voted the greenest city in the world. Bill McKibben writes about it in The Impossible Take a Little While. And they invented, among other things, uh, bus rapid transit. So you separate, you know, you have separate lanes and you board from platforms where you don't have to line up to put in the fare box. All the different elements that can basically make buses almost as fast as subways, but at a fraction of, of the cost. And that spread worldwide and all over the globe. And so Part of the hope comes, we think, oh no, we're stuck, we're burned out. And we see somebody coming up with something innovative and suddenly you replicate it and there's a new possibility. And to go back to the, the discussion in the, in the previous segment, a door opens and light comes in. And, and, and history, uh, history we do, it hasn't been written yet. It hasn't been written yet. I mean, and when you close off history... I mean, there was, a, there was a, a, a piece that I adapted from my Soul of a Citizen book uh, called You've Got to Pick Your Team. And this young activist friend of mine in Atlanta is just saying, you know, the cynics have some argument. We may lose. We may not win. But which team do you want to be on? The one with hope or the one that's given up before the game is even concluded? Because we're not going to see the end of the game. So we put ourselves in. We do everything we can. Oh, Paul, thank you so much for giving us hope and inspiration. Thank you for being on New Dimensions. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Paul Rogat-Loeb. He is the um, editor of the anthology The Impossible. We'll take a little while. Perseverance and Hope in Troubled Times. And if you want to know more about his work, go to his website, theimpossible.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3512. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.